Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the question to ask about measuring program and agency performance. How is someone on the outside that cares about this program, that is reasonably understands what we're trying to do, but how do we persuade them or inform them about how what we're doing is worthy and how what we're going to be measuring is going to help us get there? Two big steps to consider in cyber risk management. One is that there's actually a vulnerability to be exploited. And two, there's actually a a threat actor that's trying to exploit it. And the number one speed bump to hackathon success. I think the biggest thing is overcoming the concerns about exposing your vulnerabilities to an external community. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Agriculture Department's on track to pay back its Technology Modernization Fund awards between now and 2029. USDA Chief Information Officer Gary Washington tells the House Oversight and Reform Government Operations Subcommittee his agency's paid back the half million dollars it got for its Infrastructure Optimization Watershed Project and a million and a half on two other projects. Washington says the agency will pay off its most recent award for supply chain risk response by 2029. The Defense Department's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office has a new AI executive. Diane Staheli will become the leader of the Responsible AI Division inside the CDAO. She joins the department from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She served on a working group for AI in the intelligence community, too. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The connection between identity management and cyber will be in focus at the Okta Gov Identity Summit 2022. Government and industry leaders will be at the conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, June 23rd. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal agencies are building action plans to hit the priority goals the administration has set for them. Those plans will include specific measures and milestones. Chris Mim is adjunct professor of public administration at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. He's former managing director for strategic issues at the Government Accountability Office. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's here that you like and what is missing that you think should be here? Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis, and it's always great to be with you again. Um, there's a couple of things that I, I really like with the the um, agency priority goals that, that came out at the in the early part of May. They have on performance.gov a pretty consistent format across the agencies. There's about 80 of them that among the major agencies, and that's consistent over time. There's usually you know between 80 and 100 or so that administrations will have. But there's a consistent format that talks it gives a uh, the goal statement what the problem is and what success would look like. And that's done in, in basically plain English that a layperson can understand why that goal is important and why it's worthy to achieve. They have indicators and in the, in the targets and milestones and strategies that are that are in place. Um, they identify who the goal leader is and the leadership team that will be responsible for it. Very importantly, and, and this has not been consistently done in the past, they have uh, um, they identify some of the data sources and reliability issues, if there are any with some of that data, so you can get a set of, sense of the confidence you can have in the, the data. And then uh, they, they also consistently have links to for, for additional information. Now, having said that, there are obviously some gaps. You know, there's uh, at least three agencies, Education, Department of Defense and Justice, that haven't issued 
Any agency priority goals yet? And they say they're forthcoming, but they don't tell you when or why. What's the source of the de delay on that? And I think there's the, the, the other kind of consistent issue across a number of the agency priority goals is a failure to articulate the linkages. And that is the, the, meaning that, you know, though that they won't have clear language about how a particular target will actually contribute to the outcome that we're, we're trying to achieve. It may be there and it may be known to people that are, have program programmatic expertise, but to those of us on the outside looking to use this, and this is the whole purpose of putting it on performance.gov, th that's not real clear. And there's some, some real problems with linkages there. You can take Chris out of the GAO, but you can't take the GAO out of Chris. I mean, no, sir, no, sir. It's embedded. <laughs> these are the same right. conversations that we would have about these when you were still there. And I wonder what the progression is that you would like to see, not just to address the actual goals, not to see the results of what you just described, What's a, what does a successful process for developing those goals look like? What does any administration assess and learn connections about that maybe it didn't know because it's new and all of those kinds of things in order to be able to develop these successfully in the first place, Chris? Yeah, and, and all kidding aside about being a GAO lifer or, or having that, you know, in, in my bloodstream, um, you know, I one of the things that that I struggled with as I was reviewing these and thinking about them is that, is that certainly I, I found myself thinking, well, you know, here, here's where we are. It's early in administration or relatively early in administration. This is the first set of these uh, that have come out. But then on the other hand, it's like, hold on, this is not new. You know, I mean, the the, the requirements for agency priority goals, and in fact, you know, even uh, you go go back to the GPRA Modernization Act of 2010, and even predate that. You know, that the the Obama administration was doing that. Basic performance measurement requirements go back to 1993 in the original GPRA. And so, I mean, this is something where the the cadence in in organizations ought to be pretty well established. And so, it it is a little bit uh, unfortunate that it, you know some of the common themes that you know and it, you know that you and I. I could have been talking about five, 10, even 15 years ago are all still showing up, you know, and that is that, you know, where you, you, you have back to that point about, you know, explaining the relationships. And this is where to direct answer to your question is I would want them to step back and say, how is someone on the outside that cares about this program that is reasonably understands what we're trying to do, but how do we persuade them or inform them about how what we're doing is worthy and how what we're going to be measuring is going to help us get there. And so, for example, a number of the indicators that they have aren't really indicators of success. They're, they're milestones. It's we're going to launch a website. We're going to hold information sessions. That may be worthy. And in fact, I'm willing to stipulate that's very important. But at the end of the day, that's not. it's not real clear how that's going to be linked to the success and the outcomes that they want to have. Now, on the other hand, you know, you know, not to go on too long on this, I mean, there's a couple out there that I thought were particularly good. USAID, you know, that uh, has a goal that's looking at reducing um, uh, maternal mortality and uh, infant mortality, they focus on a real outcome. Um, likewise, Department of Transportation focuses on, is very clear about uh, roadway safety and reducing deaths on the, on the roadways and breaks it down by type of vehicle and pedestrian and bicyclist. In both of those cases, they're very clear that they're focusing on a, an outcome, even though the agency won't cause that, it's going to have to work with others on that, but it, they don't blink. You know, they, they don't 
you know, retreat back to, to a set of activities and outputs. So I'd like the agencies to focus on an outcome, um, be real clear that there is an attribution challenge between what they do and how they contribute to that, and then also make sure that they're explaining in plain language about what those various relationships are. I might gently uh, argue with one of the points that you made, and maybe sure. I misunderstood the way you were making it. We're not still early in this administration. We're a third of the way through, with no, that's, this that's term true. at least of this administration, yep. right, Chris? No, that's 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 you're exactly right. No, you're you're right. And so uh, the the cadence it strikes me, especially given and it's not a politics show I know, but given the political potential implications of the 2022 general election that people keep talking about that are in the political realm, it's time to hit the gas pedal, isn't it? Oh, on on all of these, you know, and it, especially some of the, you know, the, one of the strengths that uh, that is that is in here but you know to, to your point is that the uh, a number of the administration's top priorities as articulated in the PMA and and other you know statements that the president and others have made are embedded throughout these you know things like concern for equity uh, climate change uh, um, the customer experience um, depending obviously on how elections goes, those will get more or less emphasis going forward. More broadly uh, about the president's management agenda, is it encouraging to you to see that it's kind of permeating all of the policies that are coming out of OMB, that are coming out of the administration? I mean, just about everybody that I've had on this program in the last month or two that's talked about some executive order or some policy, uh, you know, the most recent one was the uh, the memo from Rob Shriver at OPM about the priorities there. Um, they're all woven together. That's, I think, pretty strikingly positive. I would agree. And I think that's a, that, that is a big strength. I mean, they're, they're on message and that, and I mean that in a, in a positive way, as I mentioned that you can see concerns with equity, which was announced day one in this administration is infused across the agency priority goals. We saw yesterday in the big report or the other day in the big report that came out on the American recovery plan on, on how that, that has equity considerations. Likewise, we've seen, you know, a, a focus on climate issues, the customer experience and how we think about administrative burden of, and the customer experience and equity coming together um, on that. I do think, though, that one of the things that is this most glaring weakness and weakness in its absence um, is the lack of cross-agency priority goals. Um, that's, you know, not to get compliance oriented in my old hat. I mean, that is required by the GPRA Modernization Act. There to be four-year goals that focus on a select number of, of outcome or policy areas that the administration cares about. Um, you don't have those. I mean, I know they took their their priorities and vision um, and seemed to have changed them into or transitioned them into a, a three or perhaps more, depending on how they want to count them, um, cap goals. But that, that's not really what the GPRA modernization was about. More importantly, they're missing huge opportunities. I mean, if you just look at the, the GAO high risk list, things like food safety, which have been on there since uh, 2007, in which we, we've been calling for an integrated government-wide strategic plan. So, oops, I fell back in my old life. They, That's they, okay. GAO, That's have been okay. calling on uh, for that. Um, climate was added in 2013. Um, national efforts to, to combat drug misuse, which also called for an integrated strategy, has, has been on there. Cyber security from 1997 has been on there. And so there are plenty of opportunities where they ought to have cap goals and don't. Is there a point where it's too late 
to reasonably think that you can move the needle on the cap goal. It's never too late to actually publish them, but the point is not to publish them, as you've said many times. The point is to actually make progress in implementing them, in executing on them. Is there a point in an administration, not necessarily this one, but any one, where it's really difficult to move the needle? Um, I, I think that, you know, it's both yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that the, the longer you wait, the harder it is, obviously, to, to move the needle. I mean, these are, are longstanding issues because they're hard. You know, that uh, um, on the other hand, it's never too late to do the right thing and to, and to be thinking about um, how do we put together an integrated strategy? And back to, to food safety, we have, you know, three, CDC says we have about 3,000 people who die each year due to foodborne illnesses, tens of thousands hospitalizations and hundreds of thousands of additional illnesses and then, you know, billions of economic losses from foodborne illnesses. Um, you know, each of the various agencies, there's 15 agencies implementing 30 food safety laws. Each of those agencies is, is are good and smart people executing on their mission. What we need is an integrated plan that bring them all together. We've tried that in the past with fits and starts through administrative initiatives. It's time to get that again. And you, you can make progress in relatively short order because the, the individual pieces are there. You need to make sure that there's strategic overlay that's in place. And that progress is possible in that area as as in in the others you can take chris out of the gao but you can't take the gao out of chris and that's why i love you man it's great to see you thanks for coming on today thank you it's always my great pleasure i look forward to it anytime you can read more about the president's management agenda in today's show notes the daily scoop podcast.com a reminder that next Monday, the Daily Scoop podcast will be off for the Memorial Day holiday. We're here all this week with new shows every day, off next Monday, and back next Tuesday with a brand new Daily Scoop podcast. The first ever bug bounty program at the Department of Homeland Security is in the books. Hack DHS revealed 122 vulnerabilities, 27 of them were critical. Kenneth Bibles, the Chief Information Security Officer at DHS. He's a 2021 FedScoop 50 recipient. Ken, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I have the photograph to prove that you're a FedScoop 50 recipient last year. Appreciate your time today. I've never been photobombed by anybody so influential, so thank you for that. Well, you give me much too much credit, and we'll put that picture if I can find it in today's show notes so people know what we're talking about. Give me the background on Hack DHS the genesis of it, how you started it, where you got the inspiration from it, what you were trying to accomplish. Well, you may recall, Francis, that back last year in the early spring, we launched our, our vulnerability disclosure program uh, along with, uh, with CISA. And this was really about how do you allow the general public even to, to find uh, things that were wrong with DHS systems. They can register and therefore they're able to go uh, participate in helping us to find uh, things that are uh, wrong with the public-facing systems of the department uh, and fix them. Uh, and CIO Heisen and I were discussing, well, where do we go from here? Uh, he would had some experience with uh, bug bounties. Uh, we have some, some experience with what DOD had done. And, and, and we had done a, a pilot of a bug bounty several years ago, but really hadn't gone into a formal bug bounty program. So, so Hack DHS as our first formal bug bounty program was the answer. Uh, it's a different angle. It's kind of part of the overall VDP. But in a, in a bug bounty, you're using vetted cybersecurity researchers and ethical hackers. Uh, and we chose to use a set of externally facing production systems. So these are not 
they weren't weren't low low hanging fruit. We actually picked some some pretty uh, significant missions uh, for both our headquarters uh, and our DHS components. Uh, and so uh, this was this is really something that was uh, unique uh, for us in terms of uh, uh, going forward with a, a bug bounty. Uh, and I'll note that really something that happened in real time was in the midst of Hack VHS, which was really aimed around specific systems, the Log4j vulnerability was announced. Uh, and within four days, we actually split out a separate bounty running across all of DHS's public-facing systems for Log4j. So to my knowledge, we were the first uh, and only federal agency to expand its bug bounty program to find, report, and remediate Log4j vulnerabilities as well. Uh, so it was really a great learning experience. All right. Sidebar there, because the biggest challenge that I've heard in the past about programs like that and being able to pivot that quickly is the acquisition piece. You know, how do yeah. we set up the vehicle to be able to pay people to do that? Where does the money come from? How did you hit that right. challenge, Ken? Well, so we, we, we well, certainly from a budget perspective, that goes back to CIO Heisen and his, uh, and his desire to go help us uh, get this launched out. And, and making a nod to CISA and their quality management, uh, uh, quality service management organization, the CUSMO vehicles, uh, that gave us the ability to get out a, a great vendor partner with Bug Crowd, uh, and and they were able to turn uh, turn on a dime for us and, and split out that uh, both the vendor and through the contractual mechanisms, uh, split out uh, that separate bounty. So really, a, an impressive effort uh, to to get after and and really bringing in 458 researchers to participate in this. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty uh, rewarding experience. If my glass is half full, I read these results that I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, Ken, and I see, oh, good. They found 122 vulnerabilities, 27 of them are critical and we can address that and learn from that moving forward. If the glass is half empty, I go, oh God, we had 122 vulnerabilities, 27 of them were critical. Um, how right. are you looking at that inside the department? Well, I think there's a difference, right? So thinking about thinking about risk in cybersecurity, there's two aspects of that. One is that there's actually a vulnerability to be exploited. And two, there's actually a, a threat actor that's trying to exploit it, right? So the fact that there were 122 vulnerabilities, some of them may have been very minor, and, and they weren't things that we saw an adversary actively scanning for, looking for in the environment. Uh, the critical ones were, were items that uh, perhaps there was an actual uh, threat actor that we could identify that might be trying to go exploit those, or it was just something that was uh, that we that we characterized as critical. And I'd go into that that why this bug bounty program. It takes a lot of people to put this together. People think that it's just about letting a contract and having some some uh, some researchers start to pound your systems for for vulnerabilities. But there's a lot that's going on in the background. You know, the, the components uh, had their CISOs that were nominating the systems, and they're having to go prioritize the fixes to things that are being found. The program managers of the systems themselves, whose teams need to be able to respond to patch and update and fix and then do the retesting. And then, of course, my own team that's keeping, you know, keeping tabs on the vulnerabilities that are being identified, evaluating, scoring the findings for the bounty payments, and keeping an eye to make sure that we're not missing some broader application to either headquarters or the components. I don't mean this question as a reflection on the ability or, uh, or competence of the people in the uh, components, because I know a lot of them and I know they're great. But does that, with 20-some components possible, does that add a level of complexity to it? And what does that level of complexity look like, if so, Ken? 
Well, I, I think that certainly in this case, this is talking about externally facing. So yeah, you've got a lot of components that have, DHS has a tremendous variety of missions. It's the most impressive set of missions that, that I've been involved in in my federal career. Everything from, from securing the border to protecting passengers flying on our, our airlines to, to helping uh, immigrants coming from uh, another country come into, uh, the, uh, into the United States and be naturalized as citizens. So just a tremendous uh, range of missions. So, so yeah, there are different systems that are involved. A lot of the technologies are common, though, and certainly we're trying to go uh, get at some, some commonality in the services that are consumed by the components as well as headquarters. But there are unique, uniquenesses in those environments. But they do a great job, and I, I just really appreciate the cooperation and help with those component uh, CISOs in, in nominating their systems and participating in the bounty. And, and that was really kind of where we wanted to be able to go in the future with this was to provide a mechanism in Hack DHS that would go beyond this first uh, first phase. It would be able to be something that the components could leverage if they had a particular issue like a log4j they wanted to look at, uh, or if it was in the broader context of uh, another phase of Hack DHS going into more uh, live uh, live. Uh, 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 events or even credentialed access inside of the the actual DHS uh, currently the firewalls, but but so so really thinking forward about what we were doing. I want to talk about the phases of this uh, later in our conversation, Ken. But I wonder sure. how this fits into the broader DHS toolbox of information security and how you expect to maybe see concepts like this grow in importance in that toolbox. Well, I, I think. Um, one of the things that I point to here, and, and it kind of came out in the Office of Management and Budget uh, memo, the M2209 memo, uh, there was a, a great desire for us as a federal government to accept the insights, these different perspectives on the cybersecurity of our systems. And this was an opportunity for us to kind of grow some confidence in the, the ability to execute that. Uh, and it also allowed us to build some relationships with the the external research uh, community, right? They're 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 looking at us and saying, "Is the government really serious about uh, letting us uh, examine their systems?" And and there's a give and take, right? We we have the the opportunity to have the conversation about why we might want to set the rules of engagement and the boundaries of what we were allowing them to look at the way we did, because we don't want to have some impact to uh, a customer facing an external facing service that citizens count on. But, but yet, we want to be able to balance that with, uh, with allowing the researchers to actually have a meaningful look at our systems and identify things that, uh, that may need to be corrected. Are there things that you're doing or that you would like to do to really mature those relationships with the researcher community that you just alluded to? Yeah, I think the biggest thing in, in maturing that is when we get into the, the live events, the live bounties, because then we actually have the teams talking with each other, right? And, and this has all been in a virtual environment or a remote, remote environment so far, which is a little bit harder to create those relationships and get to know one another uh, and to be able to have the dialogue and to have them understand the services that we're providing to the public, as well as uh, where we can value their insights. Now, I will tell you that, that uh, just thinking about it through the way a program evolves, some of the things that we found were just things that were, were built in order to go support the development of a system. And it was just left out there on the web, right? And so the researcher finds it, and we were able to go clean that up. It, it didn't, really have a, didn't really create a real vulnerability for the system, 
but it's stuff that shouldn't have been left out there for uh, just anyone to go find and, and perhaps be able to leverage into something that might be a, uh, a threat uh, to the system. Uh, I'm no expert, but it strikes me that 458, I think you said, uh, vetted security researchers, that's a pretty decent number. Those relationships obviously already exist, and there's 458 of them at least that are comfortable and, and interested in working with the agency on something like this. I, I think so. I'm, I'm really, uh, I, 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 we invited the 458. Um, uh, I, I think they're going to continue to have an interest in, in us as we go forward. And certainly I want to encourage that by, by, uh, by continuing to have events. Uh, I was just talking with uh, my staff today. Uh, we're going into uh, a next round of the remote assessments next week. So, so we'll be learning more. Uh, as we go through this particular phase of HackDHS. So you'd set up phase one. There are three phases, I read. What comes next? What's the third would look like? And what's the overall timeline in your view, Ken? Right. So, so again, we launched HackDHS in December uh, of 2021. The first uh, uh, round of systems that we looked at uh, concluded at the end of January. We're going to go into another round of those uh, remote assessments uh, next week. In the second phase, uh, which will probably be towards the end of the summer, the end of the fiscal year, uh, we really want to get back into that or get into that live in-person hacking event. That, that would be my goal would be to, and, and, and pending the, the, the ability to go con- safely conduct a, a live event, given the, 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 the COVID and, and other constraints, I really would like to see us get to that. During the third phase, really where we're going is to get the lessons learned together and to build the mechanism, uh, the, the mechanisms for DHS and the components to be able to spin up uh, bug bounties on the fly. So we'll be able to, to get after those emergent issues if a component really has a, a particular concern or that we can make this more of a habitual thing for DHS uh, to, to continue to use this external researcher uh, community to, to look at us, to, to give us a look at ourselves. You kind of anticipated where I wanted to go next, which is maybe this idea of a bug bounty in a box that any component can pick up whenever they want, whenever they think they have a reason to need to take a look at it and just kind of open the box and do it. Sounds like yeah, you've I'm built hoping, that infrastructure, right? Um, well, that's the lessons learned. That's what, that's what I got out of the ability to pivot to the Log4j uh, 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 vulnerability. It was really that this was really something that could be very useful to both uh, our enterprise-wide look as well as to the components to get at that range of talent uh, episodically when they needed it uh, and develop a model that actually could be used by organizations across every level of government uh, to increase their cybersecurity resilience. Uh, and, and that comes from, you know, increasing the, the relationship with the researcher community. So we build that mutual understanding, creating the contractual vehicles to get after it, uh, and, and then being able to go build confidence in the components and using these kinds of, of techniques of getting external researchers in. Again, it's not an easy thing to pull off. People, people have the perception that the bug bounty is just about turning loose a bunch of researchers, but there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes to, to, to manage that workflow, to score the, the, vulner, the, the uh, vulnerabilities that are discovered, uh, to, to manage that access. Uh, we, we, the, the rules of engagement, uh, you know, the researchers so, uh, sometimes uh, find things and, and want to go in farther than perhaps uh, the rules of engagement will allow, and we've got to really vet that. 
uh, and make sure that we're not going to impact upon uh, services to the public. There's a number we haven't discussed about this program that I think is fascinating, Ken, and that number is 125,600. That's the number of dollars (laughs) that you spent to gain yep. this level of visibility into what you're doing. I mean, relative to what some agencies spend on cybersecurity, it strikes me as a tremendous value. I, I can, I, I really do. I agree with you, Francis. It's it, it, to me, it was a tremendous bang for the buck to be able to, to spend a relatively small sum and be able to have that kind of, uh, kind of a result. Um, you know, I think as we get into more of the credentialed access and, and some of the broader, uh, assessment across a, a larger family of systems, we may find that that you know dollar total goes up. But but to your point, um, that that's a that's a tremendous value. That's a tremendous bang for the buck. If the dollar value doubles, that means you still learn this vulnerability uh, about these vulnerabilities, and you still learn the lessons that you've described for a quarter million dollars. And I have a hard time imagining you'll spend twice as much in the coming weeks and months as you spent right out of the gate. I mean that that's that's the bottom line, isn't it, Ken? I I, I think that's right. And and again, this is a lot of things that we found were things that uh, happened during the development of a system or a program. And so it's things that the development team, the programs kind of moved on and they kind of left some artifacts out there that, that, that we uh, discovered and needed to clean up. So, so yeah, I think it's uh, definitely a, a, a value uh, at, uh, and, I, and I hope that we'll be successful in advocating to expanding the, the, the budget that we're applying to it. Uh, and certainly what we're, what we're looking at is, again, making it available for the components as well. So it's not simply what we budget as a headquarters, but, but what the components may want to put into uh, executing on their own as well. To your point about making it available for other components, it would be so great if there was an organization in DHS <laughs> that handled um, like cybersecurity and infrastructure security, some agency <laughs> inside that would help you be able to propagate this throughout the federal government, throughout the whole civilian sector. DOD does a lot of these. would right. be great if there was somebody to help you do that, Ken. <laughs> well, again, I'll go back and give a lot of credit to our friends over at CISA, right? The Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency and their CUSMA program, right? So so they, they were a big help in terms of getting this first uh, hack DHS off the ground. And I'm hoping that we can provide, uh, that's really the, the goal here. This lines up nicely with what Secretary, Secretary Mayorkas has given as direction for the department to lead by example. Well, if I can do something in headquarters from my role in, in improving the cybersecurity posture of the department, can I take that lessons learned, provide some some examples to be used by CISA and talking with other agencies? That's a win all the way around. Is there potential, do you think? Playbooks are really hot right now. Is there potential for a playbook, though, to, for you to share what you've learned, maybe combine, collaborate with some of your uh, peers in DOD and make this available to people all across the government? Because it sounds like if it's replicable at HQ to component level, it sounds to right. me that it should be replicable DHS to other agency fill in the blank. I, I'm, I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, we haven't gotten into that level of dialogue about uh, what we might put together, but certainly given the work that CISA has been trying to do in, in promulgating this information uh, across the federal government, I, I don't rule something like that out. Ken, what else uh, should somebody at another agency think about, learn? What what did you not know when you started this process, whatever? Fill in that blank for me, if you can, about somebody who's thinking about going in this direction but has not taken the first couple steps yet. 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing is overcoming the concerns about exposing your vulnerabilities to an external community, right? It was about getting the rules of engagement right with the researchers and and putting in the right guardrails so that if a researcher kind of went in too far or or continued past what the rules said, you know, do you have the right governors in place to be able to, to pull that researcher back to avoid impacting emissions? That's probably the biggest concern going into this that that I had and my team had, particularly working with uh, components that had sensitive mission systems on the line, that we were going to take down some sort of mission capability uh, in the process of doing this. And and that is a a valid concern. But I think the, 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 the benefits of conducting this kind of effort uh, are greater than the, the, the potential risks. And, and we're really talking about extending uh, the motto of DHS, and I think it can be uh, extended across uh, uh, other areas as well. If you see something, say something, right? So the VDP kind of opened it up for the general public if they found something to be able to point it out to us. And the bug bounty brings in a cadre of very talented researchers into the same, into the same mix. Uh, but, we're, but we're putting more eyes on the problem, which, again, going back to the OMB memo, was, I think, something that they were encouraging uh, us to do. And it certainly paid dividends for DHS in my mind. I'm looking forward to see where, uh, see where it will go in the future. Ken Bible, the Chief Information Security Officer at DHS, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for a great conversation. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about Hack DHS in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow afternoon. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.